Hey, it's Sean Fennessy. We've got something special cooking on the Prestige TV podcast. I'll be recapping one of my favorite shows, HBO's Barry, every Sunday night with the writer-director star of the show, the great Bill Hader. We'll talk about the show's wild twists and turns, its special brand of dark comedy, and how it all came together. So on Sunday nights, immediately after a new episode airs, you can hear Bill and I break it all down on the Prestige TV pod. Subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the Ringer's Prestige Podcast feed, where we are covering Atlanta. I am Van Lathan, host of Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay, also half of the Midnight Boys on the Ringerverse. Pew pew. Pew pew. But more, more importantly, I am joined by my other half on uh, the Midnight Boys on the Ringerverse and the host of the Ringer Music Show, Charles Holmes. We are covering now what is the seventh episode of Atlanta. Seventh episode of Atlanta, Trini to the Bone, who's was which was written by Jordan Temple. Written by Jordan Temple, a guy who I had an exchange with on Twitter. Jordan Temple has been uh enjoying uh, our coverage on Atlanta, and he reached out um before I had actually seen Trini to the Bone, and me and him had a little back and forth. But this episode was written by him, Charles. This is another anthology episode of Atlanta where we don't see the main cast and we don't pick back up on uh, Van and Ern's night together, where we don't pick back up on uh, where pa- what Paperboy feels like following his stint with white fashion. We are back into a different story that has to do with American society's proximity to blackness, which I feel like all of the running theme of all of these anthology stories have been. How do you feel about leaving Van Ern and Darius for another episode here in number seven? I got to keep it real. You know, I always got to shoot from the hip. This was tough. Not because the episode was bad, but like momentum wise, I think we had finally gotten two back to back episodes that had thrust us into the main narrative. And it was a little jarring when I when I watched this episode because, yeah, I, I don't even know how to really begin. Um, I, yeah, I just think that this episode is a tough watch after the one that we just got, which was white fashion, because we got to learn so much more about the characters, where Paperboy is in his career, how much better Earn is at is at his job, and then with Trinity to the Bone, all that stops. Um, 
and we're kind of like taken back a step to New York. So we're not even in Atlanta. We're not overseas in Europe. We're in this new place learning about this new family. And I think that there are moments in this episode that are truly hilarious. Like I was laughing out loud, but I started to feel like the fans have been feeling, which is kind of like, yo, it's hard. I'm finding it hard to grab on. Right. So I get it. And I understand that a lot of people are going to feel that way. And I asked the question on Twitter whether or not people were consuming this season of Atlanta like they have past seasons because it just doesn't seem to be the fanfare around, around the show like they have been in past seasons. And a lot of people said they couldn't get into Atlanta. It wasn't the same. They waited too long. All of the things you would hear. And then a lot of people talked about the fact that, you know, we're not getting as much with the core crew as we've gotten in years before. I'm on record by saying I love these, whatever it is that they're doing. I feel like they found another show. I really oh, feel it's like a, they found it's another a, show. It's another show. I mean, Donald Glover himself, he went on Jimmy Kimmel, and he, he said that it was it's always been his dream, even back when he was creating Atlanta, to do more short stories, to do more short films. So I actually think that since season one, they've been slowly but surely creeping to this version of the show. I just think that being away for four years, we missed the core crew. And I would also say, and let me know if I'm tripping, I believe Stephen Glover, who has written some of my favorite episodes on the show, has said that most of these episodes were written in 2019. I do think that there's a layer of some of the jokes in this season feel don't feel as fresh because our culture is so hyper- like forward in terms of just like no no we're so it, things last for such a short term we move so quickly it moves so fast exactly so like when when there's a joke about ASAP Rocky in Sweden or like Twenty One Savage not really being from Atlanta part of my brain is like God damn wait when did that happen that was only three years ago shit or like even when like last episode when we were talking about Duray and all of that I was just like damn this reference happened three years ago. Uh, Like, my mind sometimes has to catch up to what the show is doing or actually travel back in time to be like, oh, yeah, that's what we were talking about in 2019. Right. Well, we should say in this episode, it starts uh, around a family, a family that has a Trinidadian caregiver to their young son, Sebastian. His caregiver dies. Uh, Prior to the death of the caregiver, though, the family, which seems, which is... Uh, a white American dream white father white mother they live in the Jenga building in New York which I can see right now from where I'm at um, which is this really crazy looking high rise that's in Manhattan uh, that I never it's so funny that I was talking to somebody yesterday and actually it's Kathy Gordon from my book company and she goes my book Fat Crazy Entire Tales from the Transformation is out right now Get it wherever books are sold. <laughs> Get wherever books are sold. So I was talking to Kathy from my, my publishing company. And she says they call it the Jenga building. I'm like, it's like one of the most, every time I'm here, whether I'm staying in LES, whether I'm staying in, in Manhattan, like I see the building, I'm like, oh, okay. It's like a very signature New York building to me. And it, they use it as an establishing shot. And then, of course, this is where the family lives. So that would tell you they're doing very well in life. They can afford to have a caregiver for their young son. Their son goes to private school. This guy drives a Range Rover. They are like wealth and success is all over them. Now, even prior to the death of Sylvia, who was their nanny, 
we can see that she's having an effect on their son and they hadn't realized it. That is the funny, like when that starts happening, when the mom brings home an ex-Benedict and I think the genius part of it is like, I was kind of questioning, I'm like, is this his mom? Because she treats Bash with almost this like distance being like, yeah, I ordered a coffee for us and he got an ex-Benedict and the kid turns to, (laughs) and he's just like, I don't want to eat it. It's bland. Uh-huh. Which is so funny. And then he's like, I want mango curry. Um, right. The seasoning to put all over it. And he, the thing that even happens before that is that he's watching the Proud family. It's like this young white kid. So you could already tell in the back of your mind how much this caregiver is changing his worldview very, very slowly. And even the parents aren't realizing it's happening. Yeah, it, they aren't, right? Like... And another thing happens is he eats the curry. He eats it. He just, and the dad decides to try it. And when the dad decides to try it, it destroys his taste buds because he is so far removed from what his son, what his son's tastes are. He doesn't realize how much the culture of Sylvia and the warmth and connection that Sylvia has had with their son has influenced their son, which to me is the point of this episode, which is, to me, the driving force of this episode. Okay, so we, then Sylvia dies. Sylvia dies. We, they get the word that Sylvia has died, and the the rest of it becomes how much of this do do the mother and the father expose their son to? Do they take him to Sylvia's funeral? How do they explain to him that Sylvia is no longer going to be with them? And while doing this, they're discovering a bond and uh, uh, a relationship that is insanely meaningful to their son, but that they actually have no clue about. And it's making them feel more isolated from the boy, but also more intrigued upon about who she actually was. And this woman who had been in her house, who had been a part of them, who had been, uh, uh, you know, a surrogate mother to their son, they didn't know anything about her. And as much as the father continues to throw out these facts that he read about music, about slavery, about whatever, all of that knowledge isn't familiarity. Yeah. Like that's not familiarizing yourself with Sylvia. They got more knowledge about who Sylvia was by going to her funeral than actually while she was alive. And that was very powerful to me because I feel like that is sort of a, um, I feel like white people learn about black culture through sorrow. They learn about black culture through uh, how we view America when something really terrible happens. And while we're alive and giving to America, while we're alive and contributing to America, while we're alive and actually recognizing and adding to the fabric and culture of America, we are largely ignored. They had been raising her son. His favorite songs were from her. His favorite shows were from her. Uh, his favorite foods were from her. He wants to play steel pan. Like, <laughs> like you, you know what I mean? All these no, things he, are from her. No, he goes to church. He goes to a black church and he is in it. He is like, yeah. his parents are just kind of like, what is going on? He's doing the like the amens and he looks at this culture not from a, like he's not reading it from Wikipedia like his dad is. He's actually views it in this loving way. But I want to kind of zoom out what I think that this episode is doing and what I think is kind of genius about 
the three episodes that we've seen that have not been a part of the main narrative is that they're all essentially about family. In the first episode, we see that the the white lesbian couple and how their relationship to blackness and raising black children is so is so fraught and dangerous. It's almost to them a status symbol of their good white people in culture. In the second episode, the the reparations episode, we see that the the white husband only can understand the black mom when he goes on her Instagram and sees the love that she has for her children. And that's the kind of thing that helps him cross the threshold being like, she just wants to help her family get a better life. And in this third episode, we see a Trinidadian, a black woman, helping this young white boy through life, loving him in a way that his parents, at least at this point, aren't capable of. And I think seeing these episodes kind of through that lens of like, what are they saying about family and how race affects it? Because the other thing that's happening in this episode is that for Sylvia to do this for this white child, she had to sacrifice her motherhood for her own children. And her children are kind of trying to come to grips with like everybody saying all of this amazing stuff about this woman, but I feel like I was robbed of some of that because she was trying to provide financially. Right. So let's talk about that right now. I am going to talk. I texted him earlier because I hadn't watched the episode, right? I am going to talk to Jordan Temple. This experience was my life. My grandmother died in the year 2003 or 2004, my dad's mother. When she passed away, I went to her funeral, right? My grandmother, who I, you know, obviously known all my life, she was my father's mother. I went to her funeral, and there were all of these white people there. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I had known that my grandmother was a nanny, right? Because every now and again, well, not every now and again, you would go to her house, And there would be pictures of us up there, my sister and I, but then there would also be pictures of white kids. There would be pictures of them up there as as, as well. And I go there and I see kids like my same age, a little bit younger than me, crying, freaked out. I'm like, who rich people? And I'm like, who are they? It's like, oh, those are, and they knew my dad. Like those are kids that your that your grandmother kept. Those are them. I had never met them before. Maybe one mm. time I think I can remember meeting one. I've never met them before. My father wasn't raised by my grandmother. My father was raised by his grandparents. See, his grandparents raised him, Big Mama and Big Papa. My grandmother Medea, she didn't um she didn't raise him. She gave my dad up to his grandparents, whatever she was going through when she was a younger woman, like I guess it was too much, and my grandparents raised my dad, right? He, my dad had 11 brothers and sisters that were really his aunts and uncles. He was much younger than them. Uh, so there was even, really, to be honest with you, a disconnect between my father and my grandmother. That was his mom, and he loved his mother, but also he had another mother that was his day-in, day-out sort of mom. So, like, seeing that and then seeing kids there that looked at her some of them come to find out that looked at her as more of a mother than their moms where my dad, I'm not saying she was less of a mother, but I'm saying she certainly was 
a bonus mom in a way she wasn't around like she like he he was living with them so it was th- like the the funeral went down in exact the same exact the same way there were people who loved the fact that these people who were very well off were there to say thank you to my grandmother but then there were people who resented them being there there were people there were people that resented them being there because them being there represented the absence in the life of my grandmother um, that they had experienced. And in terms of a black funeral, right, when you go to a black funeral, in this scene, they go to the, the Sylvia's funeral. They meet. We're going to talk about Chet Hanks' cameo in this. Um, shout out Chet Hanks. Chet Hanks, that's actually my man. So like, we're going to talk about Chet Hanks' cameo in this. But in this, in the, they go to the funeral. And in the funeral, you get everything you get at a black funeral, which is sometimes indicative of our experience you get this amazing sense of overcoming tragedy and loss where people go, hey, somebody passed away, but wouldn't they just all be happy that we're here? Let's talk about how amazing they were. Let's laugh. Let's dance. Let's eat. Let's do all of this stuff. But we also can't tuck our trauma. We're bad at it. We're too too emotionally honest to tuck our trauma. And that moment where old lady, where, where, where her daughter grabs the mic and goes in, that shit happens all the time. Wait, can I tell you? I, I think I might have told you this, but this was like a wild thing that happened. So I had a a grandmother. I, it was at the funeral. Like the thing that like touched me about this episode is I'm like, oh no, shit do come out at a funeral. Like all the shit that like people have been keeping inside for years, once like a matriarch or a patriarch is gone, like there, I think there's a level of respect in the black community. Like we're not going to talk about this shit when they're here. But um I'm light-skinned. If you've seen a photo of me, you know that uh, I am light-skinned listeners. Uh, I was, one of my grandmothers was light-skinned and she dies. And it had been this big secret where people were like, do you got, well, why do you blah, 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 blah. And she'd always like, it's Native American. And it's Native American. And she passes away. And then we had the repass. And then like my uncle, who, you know, is a little off the sauce. He's like, all right, I've been waiting to say this, you know, but y'all white. Y'all got some white in you. And I'm like, what the fuck is, like, what is happening? And, like, all my cousins, like, my same age is like, oh, shit. And I'm yeah. like, all right. And, yeah. like, literally, he, like, goes through this whole family tree of just, like, who was white on whose side and all of this, like, racial shit that was happening and why people had to hide it and why people couldn't claim it. And, like, people do not realize a bunch of this trauma you don't talk about in life when the Hell elders no. are alive, you yeah. talk about that shit when they are gone. Oh, yeah. Like that's not what you do. Like so, when this, like when the daughter gets up there and she's like, "Yo, look, fuck this. I didn't get to have a mom." I'm like, "Nah, that is the emotion that happens when you're like, I've been waiting forever to say this." But I think the other reason that this show touched me, this episode touched me, is that. I was raised by my grandparents when my like parents were trying to make money and stuff. I lived with them and I got to see a version of them that my uncles and aunts didn't get to see a loving version of, of them, a version that had the time to take me to school, walk me to class. They were, they they had softened. They were older. Yeah. They they had softened. Like, and it was this thing where like, there was a little bit of resentment because it felt like my uncles and aunts were like, yo, I had 
a dad who was in the military and was strict and was always about being the best we could. And I come over here and they're like making you peanut butter and jelly and taking you to school and like talking about how good you guys are. And I was like, oh, this is something that happens in the Black community because we don't have generational wealth. It's only when older Black, like grandparents, get to a certain age, they can soften. They're like, I don't have to be just the protector. I can just fully love them because right. there's that distance. And I was just like, that is a very smart thing to shape an episode around. To, to dissect, right? And then when it crosses cultural lines, when you take someone that's a cultural alien and bring them into a situation like that and watch how they observe it, like, I looked at this episode and I didn't get the sense that in any way and some of the other ones that we've seen, the white characters have been at least latently nefarious, if I'm being honest with you. They have been. They've been, they've been the like the whiteness. These people just seem like they were blissfully ignorant to social mores and cues outside of their own and trying to do their best with it. They were actually trying to do their best with their son. At the end of the episode, the mother is singing Trinity to the Bone. She doesn't try to change the song that he loves. They understand the cultural investment they've made into Sylvia, and they probably understand something different. All right, that, I, I totally disagree with you, but continue. Okay, okay, let's I think go, they're okay. so I think they're so sinister in a way that I, disturbed me. I don't think that they were sinister at all, but we, we could talk about it. So um, I also think there's something else about them. I think that they realized that they never really saw their son. And there's a difference with, and, 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 and love, love isn't easy. Like love isn't a roof. Love isn't anything. Love is like a hug spiritually, culturally, and emotionally. And I think that Sylvia, as evidenced by those pictures, was putting, the, putting her hands, putting her arms around the boy more than they were. And I think it took this for them. And it's almost as if, you know, the package keeps coming over and over and over again. She's haunting them. Like the specter of this woman who had this immense ability to love throughout all of these circumstances. And when you learn the circumstances of her life, she had been an Alvin Ailey dancer. She had been through so many things. It represents sometimes how, to me at least, black people, like even in these circumstances, there's this sense of like, needing and love from one another that like almost transcends where would where you would live or who you would be and that almost sometimes for, to us at least in the past it's felt better than living in the jingle building it's felt better than being on the other side of things it feels like something that no matter how i feel when i see the police i wouldn't change it or 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 or, or reevaluate it, or want to do away with it for that cultural connection and that feeling that I get from my people in South Louisiana, not for all the money Elon Musk bought Twitter for, you know what I mean? Um, and and being in the middle of that, but still knowing that you're quite going without sometimes, it's kind of confusing, and it's probably was confusing to the family like, as the people were there. But you were saying you disagree with me, and I don't mean to take up too much space. So tell me what's up. I thought the parents were very sinister from the Word beginning up. in terms okay. of like so I'm from like not from but like I'm, I'm from the east coast I live in New York right now 
that family tells you everything that you need to know kind of about the politics of the city where when they go, I don't know, where do you think that they were um, in terms of like when they cross, when they go from Manhattan to her funeral? I wouldn't know because like, I don't know New York like that. But like, know. let's say that's not like, that's probably not like Manhattan. Like right. that's not, oh, it's, like it's definitely city, not Manhattan. Yeah. The city proper. So they say um, when they, when they cross there, like practically in the islands, like that is a very real thing when you've been living in New York where I have like some white friends who like won't come to Brooklyn. Like that, this is not what they do. It's like another, it might as well be another world to them because the ecosystem of the city, them living in a high rise means they're essentially living in a different country from your average immigrants, from like whether I'm talking about whether you're black, whether you're Mexican, West Indies, I don't give a fuck. If you living in the Bronx or Brooklyn or anywhere like that, you might as well just be living in California. That's kind of like how much people do not cross. And you see throughout this episode, they're arguing like, the, the wife at one point is like, what if we got someone who was a little bit more metropolitan? And then they go back and forth. They're like, yeah, but that would be more expensive. And they're like, well, Sylvia wasn't inexpensive and all this stuff. And I'm like, that is so sinister because right at that moment, they did not think of Sylvia as like a woman, a caretaker who's doing the most important job in their life, which is taking care of their son. They're thinking of her as a product of someone who delivers a service to them. And that to me is kind of like what hurt about the episode watching it is that I'm just like, yo, they don't, they didn't care. They didn't care until they saw what she did for their son. They didn't think of her as a human or even when they're like cleaning, they're like, why is all of her stuff in our apartment? I'm like, because she had to live there. She had to literally uproot her entire life to take care of your child. That's the sacrifice. That's something that her daughter and her sons will never get back. You can never buy that time back. And to me, it's like, it's cool that they're starting to understand it by the end of the episode. But I kind of get, I know it's played for last, but I get why the daughter is so upset. Oh, just, I, of course I do. Yeah, for sure. She's never, she can never buy that time with her mom back. You know, money comes and goes, but that time with your mom is so, it's the most precious thing that you will ever have in this world. And yeah, it just, that was the part to me that like was really sinister and made me just be like, oh, I don't like these people. At so all. this is why I love potting with you because you're not wrong, but yet you still are. <laughs> why do you always say that? Because it's true. <laughs> you're not wrong, but I still disagree. And I, I, I love being in that space. Like, the, we, this is two different perspectives that we have on this. I look at sinister I look at sinister as intention, right? Mm-hmm. So the hard thing that it is, as being a black person for me, the hardest thing to get white people to understand or other people to understand sometimes is it doesn't matter whether it's intentional or not. All of that matters is that it happens, right? Um, it doesn't matter whether or not it's unintentional that you do something. If it happens and it never changes, it doesn't affect you any less that it's unintentional, Right. You didn't mean to miss your to forget your girl's birthday or which I or your her anniversary. You didn't mean to. You're busy. It doesn't make her feel any less bad that uh that you didn't mean to or your mom's birthday or whomever's birthday, not to be the hyper heteronormal heteronormal with everything. But um it doesn't make her feel any different way that you didn't do it on purpose. The only th- the only fact th- the only 
way that the fact that you didn't do it on purpose, uh, the only way that that's important is that it means that it's more easily correctable. You see, if you did it on purpose, it denotes that there's a worldview behind it, that there is a mantra behind it, that there is an, an, an intentionality behind it. That means it's going to take me a lot to change your mind. If you didn't buy your girlfriend's uh, birthday present on purpose and you were trying to ruin her day, now we have to talk about why those reasons are probably a lot deeper than I just forgot. You can you can just do the I just forgot with a calendar reminder or you can talk about deeper issues or whether or not you should, whatever. Um, so when I look at them and say that they're not sinister, it's not that they're not, that they're not callous and they're not unfeeling is that they don't know that they are. And those are the types of people that it's very interesting for me to try to talk to in a real society and then try to examine when we're looking at art like this. They don't know that they are. That's most. That's the most exciting thing about talking about race and culture in America to me because it, it leaves so much oxygen for change. But it's also the most frustrating thing because sometimes it feels like it's something that you can't change if, yeah. if, if somebody's doing something and they don't know that they're doing it. It seems like all you got to do is say, hey, you're doing it. And then they're going to go, oh, I didn't know. But if they don't know, they might say, well, then I'm not doing it. You know what I mean? So in the case of this of this show, they, the like I said, what, what, what happens for black people sometimes in the hole in, the hole in their life was only created, what, they only realized what she meant in their lives when, when, by the hole that she left. And they would have never, they didn't even realize that, that, that there's a hole in their life and their son is one of the holes. Yeah. They would never think that their son likes to watch the Proud Family. They don't know what that is. <laughs> they don't know shit about him. Sylvia, whose job, because of her socioeconomic status in America, it is to love her their son. She started loving him as a job and then she started loving him because she loved him. There's a great movie called Clara's Heart and it's with Whoopi Goldberg and goddamn Neil Patrick Harris. Now, there's a part in this movie where Neil Patrick, Neil Patrick Harris gets mad at Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi, Go, Whoopi Goldberg is Clara, the Jamaican lady who takes care of him. Like, well, Neil Patrick Harris gets mad at Clara because she's got she's going to go take another job. And he looks at her and he says, I knew you'd leave. You'd just be a nigger in the end. God damn, what? I swear. And I've so many times wanted to put that on Twitter for clout. <laughs> and like, just, just, just for fun, just to fuck people's head up by Neil Patrick Harris looking at Whoopi Goldberg and being like, you'll just be a nigger in the end. But he was only, she didn't even get mad. Like, she was, she, she was only mad. He was only, he was mad because she was leaving. You know what I mean? Uh, but anyway, I say all that to say, I agree with you, but I still don't think that they were bad people. It's just what I call a A M W. Absent-minded whiteness. <laughs> they just didn't know. And like, look, and there's other ways that I'm absent-minded and stuff like that. So they they, they just didn't know. But I, oh, do I don't think they're evil, evil people. I more so think that like the interesting thing that the episode won't answer and can't answer is that will they change? And what I mean by that is, is they're she talking. Sang, she sang the song at the end. There is singing the song. She sang and the th- song at the end. I'm telling the fact that she sang the song at the end. She sang that was the she sang the song and he finally opened the package. 
And I think that is that is great. And I think that is like a positive <laughs> reading of the situation. I'm Mr. Negative Nancy. And I'm like, damn, they talk like, all right, I'll put it to you this way. They only started to understand Sylvia's worth when, oh, she's related to somebody who plays for the Patriots. Oh, word. Oh, she she did this for my son. She did that for my son. All, like, it takes them, all of that to know her worth. I think the next step is like, if they get another Sylvia, do they pay her the same amount that they would pay potentially uh, someone to watch their kid who can teach him Mandarin? That's actually what the next level of just like, if you know how important Sylvia was to you, or how do you rectify this situation? It, how do you pay it forward? And I don't know if that, if that, I'll tell happen. you what, we, we ain't get shit from the people that my grandmama took care of. <laughs> Isn't that a little fucked up, though? They out there. I don't know. I don't know what they do. They owe us that they paid her. What did they owe me? You know what I mean? Like they, like, like I, I don't know. They, they, they paid her. You, you ain't want your forty acres uh, and a mule, goddamn. Like, like, I would love that forty acres. <laughs> you know that forty acres would be dope. You know, if if we got, if I got my forty acres, in, first of all, if you got your forty acres and a mule right now, first of all, it wouldn't be a mule. Well, I have to get forty acres and like what, what would you get? Because we got Subaru, do, like just like a nice affordable like a, like car, like a nice car, but like not something that's like. I mean, forty acres in twenty twenty two, like goddamn, like come on, I'm going to Montana, like I'm just gonna. You start, would take it in Montana. I don't know. Like I would take it in one of those Wyoming, whatever. Like the shit yeah. that like Kanye was driving his shit back when right. he was making yay in the mountains. And I just start like get a bunch of like dogs and just like just live with my dogs on the land and shit. That would be so dope. Like so, I don't know where I would get it, but I'll tell you a story real quick. I, I met a lady on a plane one time. I don't know if I've ever told you this story. I was going to 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 to, to Peach Jam, EYBL, Nike League, Augusta, Georgia. I was going to Peach Jam. I was working Peach Jam. I meet this lady who's going back to Augusta too. She lived in North Carolina. She was telling me she had a farm. I'm like, oh, okay. She said, yeah. She goes, actually, she's like, Peach Jam. Peach Jam is like peach because peaches. I'm like, yeah, I would think that they would do it in Georgia and not in South Carolina because the plane lands in Augusta, Georgia. Then Peach Jam is in Augusta, South Carolina. Oh. And then Mm. then she goes, "Um, well, actually, South Carolina produces more peaches than Georgia. Wait, is that true? Was, so that's what she said. <laughs> and then I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, actually, our farm produces more peaches than the entire state of Georgia. I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, the farm that we have produces more peaches than the entire state of Georgia. And I was like, like, how big is your farm? And she goes, um, which, like, which part? And I was like, the part that produces the peaches. Damn. And she goes, yeah, that's just one part of the farm. It's about 10,000 acres. I was like, huh? That's like some Yellowstone shit. Come on. And she was like, but the entire farm that we have, which is fucking, I don't know, all kinds of different vegetables and stuff like that, it's 27,000 acres. And I was like, how did you guys get that much land? And she goes, well, you know, the land has been in my, fam- my, father's fam- my husband's family for a long time. And I'm like, hmm. Like it's, but very nice lady. We had talked about the fact that her family would go to Angola all the time because obviously they rich. She was like, "Yo, I still got a car." 
I'm gonna go up there and deer hunt. She was like, "You come deer hunting on the floor? I'm gonna go up there." But you know, I'm thinking about I, I, I think about stuff like that when I think about the forty acres. You know, if we pull together our forty acres, we might be able to have our whole little situation. That's what I'm saying. Like farm. everybody makes the joke, like, "Oh, forty acres." I'm like, "No, like, do you understand? Like, forty acres of land. That's a it, lot of land. It's a lot of land. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's like life changing shit." Let's talk about Chet Hanks real quick. So obviously, Chet Hanks is in here as a goof to the audience. Chet, who I've had on the Red Pill podcast, who I've talked to before. Uh, Chet is a guy who I can't defend some of his social media antics, but I can tell you that Chet Hanks is a good dude. He's just, he's just like been through a lot. And sometimes it comes out in fucked up ways. And sometimes I got to be like, Chet, stop. But uh, he actually does a great job. He's he's really pro- he's really progressing as a performer. Um, obviously, the end joke is that Chet Hanks has been known to talk in Jamaican or West Indian Patois. And there are a lot of people who think it's hilarious and a lot of people who think it is the height of cultural appropriation and white ickiness. But in this episode, he essentially plays the future version of their son, Sebastian. Yeah. Um, he he loves all the songs. He's even wearing <laughs> a, a, a Bluetooth thing in his ear. <laughs> the whole nine. What do you think about Chet in this? And what do you think that character represents? Uh, so I agree with you immediately when I was watching it. I'm like, oh, this is supposed to be kind of like a what happens to Bash if he if like in the future he becomes yeah. a Chet Haynes figure. I was like, that is exactly what's happening. I think my issues with the episode kind of start with Chet Hanks in a couple ways. Uh-huh. Going back to what we said in the beginning, how would how would Atlanta have landed in 2020? Maybe how would it have even landed in early 2021 when Chet Hanks was at the the peak of white boy summer? I think the joke probably would have landed a little bit better. I think I just I know what you too, mean. I just know too much about Chet Hanks now, where it's like it went from being like ha ha funny to kind of like oh, this is as you pointed out, just kind of like a eh, little icky. And I think that there's a level of like if this is problematic, we can scrub this shit. Of like kind of like our business type shit to this episode where it was just like there's this part where it's be like, look, we're scaring the white family. And they're just like, this is just how we show love. And I'm like, that is a very nuanced thing to unpack in a 30 minute episode where I do think that there is a lot of uh, historical social reasons that like the way that, you know, black people have. To- no, without a doubt, you're right. It's like that part. I was just like. This is such an interesting thing that you can never unpack in a 30-minute comedy show. There's just like too much like when they're just like, we're scaring the white people. And I'm just like, this is like funny, but also kind of weirdly like fuck this. Like I can I, I can see it, but I, I can see it. But the fact that it's real just makes me it just washed over me. One thing about that Chet Haynes character is you think that they then as soon as the fight breaks out. He turns back into a white boy, right? He screams world, world star. star. And I'm right. like, Dude, so like world star, he's taping the fight. He doesn't give a fact a fuck about how the family's gonna look. He becomes the thing that we're scared of, right? We're scared that we let you in and you, we we hang out with you and you're a part of the culture. And then as soon as it there's there's a there's a state change, you go back to somebody that doesn't care how we look, is is gonna explain something with no context, is gonna do that whole thing, you know? So so there you go. But to your point, yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. It, it's that part of it's icky, but it's icky in the real world. It's icky in the real world that that guy that, but think about the character that did that. That guy was the same character that at his sister's funeral was trying to solicit work from that family. That person exists, Charles. 
that that opportunist that like exists, that person that you can come in that no now these are the same people that were sucking Elon Musk's dick on Clubhouse. I was like, don't y'all have any fucking respect for yourself? I know this is the second Ringer podcast that I've brought up with it. I'm like, yo, <laughs> it, 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 it's like it's like don't y'all come on, man. And so I, it is icky, and you can't unpack that in a 30 minute. Uh, episode of Atlanta. You can't unpack that in a 300-minute episode of Atlanta. But it didn't bother me because it's, you know, it, it played real. Uh, wait, can I just say this too? I think sure. the reason I love having these chats about Atlanta is that, like, I like to give Atlanta the grace to do messy shit because we watch white shows all the time that are messy as hell. And I'm like, I don't actually expect Atlanta to be perfect. I expect Atlanta to be interesting and make us talk. And even if sometimes I'm like, I don't agree with the politics of this right now, I like that they went for it. Like, I'd rather they like swing for the fences and like miss than it just kind of be like, all right, we're going to do like the watered down version of yeah. this no, for a white sure. audience because that's fucked up as well. And I think that it's just like, yeah, it's cool that this episode is so weird and is willing to do some shit where I'm like, uh, not with it, but still talking to you, I'm just like, you kind of bring me around. I'm like, I'm, I'm glad they went for it. You know right. what I mean? So uh, overall, good episode of Atlanta. So we're, we're, we're in lockstep that we're enjoying the show this season, but we can see why some people aren't. You know what I mean? It's it's evident, like, while some people aren't, this is a little too artsy for people. Sometimes maybe it's a little too forward for people. I loved this episode. I've liked them all. But this is kind of like a situation to where I like a show about a superhero, right? But I can see why if the superhero never shows up in <laughs> the show. Don't bring that on this part. That some people might not like it. And that doesn't mean that you're being a dick because you're saying that, hey, the guy's not in the show. Pew, pew. Charles, you got anything before we go? Yeah, I think I think I want to, you know, tell everybody out there. I think what's best what's best about Atlanta this season is that there's a version of Atlanta that just repeats season one and season two. And I think that more people would be would love that shit and it would be like smooth sailing. But I do think that like I'm attracted to if we're if well, there's not that many black shows out there and we're getting more every year, but there's just not that many. The ones we have that are willing to be like, hey, we're not going to play it safe. We might do something that might piss you guys off, that might distance some of our fan base that some people might not get. I'm with it. That happens all the time in music where I'm just like, I'll listen to an album one week and be like, this is the this is shit. And then I'll listen to it a month, a year later when I'm in a different zone. I'm like, oh. I understand what they're doing. I grew around the art. I'm not expecting the art to grow around me. As a human, you kind of like, as you move through life and your experiences, you're like, all right, I'm going to come back to this art. What do I feel about it? That doesn't mean that it's going to get any better or any worse. It's just that I like that Atlanta so difficult because each episode I can come to that shit and be like, am I fucking with this or not? And why not? And I don't know. It's a great journey to go on. I agree. All right. That is Charles Holmes from the Ringer Music Show and the Midnight Boys, Pew Pew. I'm Van Lathan from uh, Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay. And of course, Higher, uh, the Ringerverse. Um, bruh, fantastic. Next week, we do it again, right? Hey, of course. We out here. This has been the Ringer Prestige Podcast feed. Our producer is Jonathan Swole Spidey Kerma. We thank you. We could not have done it without you, Kerm. Appreciate you.